This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello and a very happy Friday afternoon to you. Today, Meat and Livestock Australia has just launched two new market indicators for livestock producers. We'll take a look at those two indicators shortly. Also, the collapse in the lamb market has many farmers across the country cutting back on the number of workers in the shearing shed. So we'll take a closer look at that a little later in the hour. And, of course, Danny Burkett along. Fingers crossed that he picks up the phone today and he'll go through the wool market for you just before the news at 1 o'clock. It is 6 past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and, of course, on the ABC Listen app. Huge parts of the state's southwest land division have experienced very close to their lowest October rainfall on record. In its regular drought report, the Bureau of Meteorology says October rainfall for the southwest and great southern regions was in the lowest 10% of historical observations. Some wine producers in the Margaret River region are saying in the last 20 years they've experienced more and more significantly dry periods. Winemaker Vanya Cullen says despite getting very little rain last month, this season has been okay, but they're planning for drier conditions in the future. We're a little bit worried about the the you know the forecasting for hot and dry conditions going forwards, which are forecast for the southwest Western Australia and indeed Margaret River, in terms of long term effect on the vineyards. When we put in our dams or some of our dams um, back in two thousand and five, when all the licensing came up, we would never we never really thought that we would ever have to use and think about irrigation. But you know we are on the page of thinking about that now because we're a dry farmed estate. Not to say that we would, but, you know, we, we think that it's a possibility because of the, you know, the forecast for the southwest um, of WA being hotter, drier, more fires, more marine heat waves, less groundwater catchment flow, more wind erosion, loss of biodiversity, you know, and concluding the potentially the Jarrah Forest. I think it just, you know, West Australia needs to have a, a, a greenhouse gas emissions target people say well you know move further south or move to Tasmania but I think we really need to look at mitigating climate change in Western Australia. You touched on that back in 2005 when you put dams in you didn't really think that you'd ever have to irrigate so this is not something you were really predicting. I mean climate change was on the page but it was not not really I mean I thought we'd have the water but you know we'd probably never use it to be honest. Now what is happening and, and the scientific evidence about climate change, it's very much a part of the dialogue in terms of what could happen. So are you going to plant different grape varieties? You're going to do that. I've always thought Margaret River is a great Cabernet Sauvignon producing region um, and there's no no reason for that to change. But we do, as, as, as a state, um, need to look at how do we mitigate all of that and affect you know, climate change globally. 
the fires is also a part of that. I mean, in recent years, there has been more bushfires every season with respect to the harvest. And of course, you know, smoke taint affects, if you get a vineyard which is affected by smoke taint, you know, you, you can't use those grapes. I mean, it, because it, it smells like smoke. West Australia, Margaret River has been very lucky with respect to not affected like the East Coast um, in terms of the fires as much, particularly in 2019, because we have had cool seasons because of the negative Indian dipole and also the um, La Nina, that has finished last December. We now have the positive Indian dipole and we're going into a hot and dry, which actually clicked in at December just when it was supposed to. We went dry and we did last harvest. We didn't have any rain from December till after harvest. It's like we, the uncertainty of it, we don't know, but definitely the scientific um, information is there about climate change and, you know, we can't ignore it. So this is something I'm very worried. It looks great for this season, but what is going to happen? going forwards. What does this mean for your harvest coming up? At the moment we've had good good weather during flowering so we have good crops it's looking great we have had around 700 millimeters of rain it's not enough but hopefully we'll have a little bit more but if the forecasts are correct about going hot and dry it's going to be an early harvest if we start getting down to 600 millimeters of rain gets hotter and drier it's going to affect the type of wines that we make we're part of a global problem you know, and, and it will affect us. Vanya Cullen, Chief Winemaker at Cullen Winery, speaking to Kate Forrester. 10 past 12. Rowan Vaux runs a mixed sheep and cropping farm with his family near Ongarup, 400 kilometres southeast of Perth. He says it's a shame last month was so dry because grain yields and quality drop right off, especially for those in the more northern growing regions. It was yeah very below average. We basically got no rain in October. We were looking amazing. It's it was a bit of a it was a bit of a slow start to the season, but through um when it started raining in June, it didn't really stop and until August. So we were positioned really really well coming into spring. Then we ended up starting on the second of November, I think it was. So probably a couple of weeks earlier than we normally do. And what are you currently harvesting at the moment? Uh, a little bit of Maximus barley. It's going very much feed. <laughs> the quality, the, the, the weight and the, um, the retention's not there. The potential that we were looking at probably dropped the yield a little bit, but still, it's still yielding quite well. It's just the, uh, yeah, the quality's, quality's a bit lower on the, um, on the malting barley. We haven't had any malt go in yet. And we obviously haven't, looking at the wheat, looks like it's pinched off a bit as well. So, yeah, we'll see when we get into that. But overall, it's still quite good. Is this the fastest end to a season that you've seen? Possibly, yeah. Well, in, in my farming group, which is not very long, or, well, I do speak to the old man. He reckons it's, it has happened a few times in his career. So we didn't really, basically didn't get a spring. It was cold winter and then it was summer. Our farming friends up north have, have struggled a bit with rainfall. I've done a couple of trips up north this year, lower than the potential that they've had for the last few years. So... Yeah, it's, it's certainly tougher on them than it is for us. We're still very happy with what's going on here and it's not across the board that everyone's having a good finish and a, and a good harvest. That's Ongarup farmer Rowan Vaux speaking to Kate Forrester. 12 past 12 here on The Country Hour. Meat and Livestock Australia has today launched two new market indicators for livestock producers. Driven by the rise and rise of online livestock sales, MLA now has the online young cattle indicator and the online lamb indicator. 
MLA's Senior Market Information Manager Stephen Bignall says the indicators are the result of a recent review. A lot of the feedback that we got then was MLA should increase uh, its coverage of different sales channels. So we've taken that feedback online. It's been a while in the making, but we have partnered uh, with online providers and, and generated an online indicator, both the Ollie for lamb and the Oki for young cattle. How do you think producers will use these indicators? Um, I think that for producers that are looking at selling online, it will give a really good understanding to those producers around the trends that are happening in the online marketplace. The online lamb indicator is for animals, suckers and lambs up to 24 kilos. And for cattle, it includes weaner, heifer and steers and yearling heifer and steers between 200 and 400 kilos. So it'll provide trends. The lamb one is in dollars per head basis and the cattle, the online young cattle indicator uh, is in a cents per kilo live weight basis. In ways, is this just an ad for Auctions Plus? Uh, No, so all um, online sales providers have been invited into this and and we obviously want to expand throughput and we also want to expand the um, types of indicators, so a mutton indicator and the likes in in the future. So um, everyone has been consultant and given the opportunity to um, contribute. And are those various organisations giving you data? At the moment, the pool of who we're pulling from is is limited. But like I said, we, we, we want to expand who, who we um, work with on this. At the moment, do you see any noticeable trends or differences, I guess, between the online market and the physical sale yards? I think what we're what the, the the cattle market is trending similar. Obviously, a lot of the transactions are sort of from that restocker side is that restocker side of the market. So obviously farmer to farmer. So it, it's tracking a lot what we're seeing in the sale yards in terms of from a trend perspective. The, the key piece this indicator also offers, Matt, is it does allow actually for the first time, they're not breed indicators, but we do break out the performance of individual breeds. How big has online selling of livestock become in the last five years? Online as a sales platform really boomed the rebuild and the and COVID obviously uh, occurred at the same time. And so we saw a lot of demand from producers, both of cattle and sheep, looking to grow their herds and flocks. And what the online platforms um, provided producers was the opportunity to source animals outside their local region. So feedback has been from producers that they want this, but also by covering an, an additional sales channel. So we know that For cattle, online transactions make up 6% of total transactions and for sheep, 9%. We wanted to provide producers with greater transparency of of what's happening in the the market. And so by covering an additional sales channel, that being online, we're able to do that and provide more pricing information to producers. And we know the more information leads to better decision-making. So so that's that's the premise for, for why we've done this. So the Ollie and the Oki are now online. You can find it on Meat and Livestock Australia's website. That was Stephen Bignall. He's MLA's Senior Market Information Manager and he was speaking to Matt Bran. 16 past 12. Australian and American scientists are working together on a safer African swine fever vaccine that could be the first of its kind in the world. African swine fever has never been detected in Australia, but is widespread in Southeast Asia. Dr David Williams is a CSIRO swine fever expert who's involved in this research project. 
so African swine fever um, is a, a contagious um, and highly lethal uh, disease of pigs. It only infects pigs. It doesn't infect humans. So eating infected pork uh, is safe for humans. But it, it's really devastated the, the global pork industry over the last 15 years. Um, it's gone from uh, being confined to Africa to now spreading to, to five continents around the world. Uh, and it's on our doorstep. It, it's, uh, it emerged uh, in Timor-Leste and, and Papua New Guinea uh, in the highlands there. So it's, a, it's considered uh, one of the top biosecurity uh, risks and threats to Australia. And many experts in the animal health field can now consider African swine fever to be the worst uh, livestock pandemic in history. Okay, so you've got this vaccine candidate, you're going to do this uh, evaluation work, as you said, and I'm, I'm sure that's highly scientific and technical, but in, in broad terms, what does that evaluation work involve? What that work will involve is a, an initial phase uh, that will be based in the laboratory. So we'll be doing laboratory testing uh, on that vaccine um, using our uh, African swine fever research tools, and we'll be evaluating how well that, that vaccine uh, works in inducing that T-cell immunity that I mentioned before. And the next stage will be to move to, to pigs. Once we're satisfied that we've got the candidate uh, in an optimised form, we'll then move to evaluating the, uh, the, um, the candidate in pigs, uh, which of course is the natural host, and, and that's our, our target species for vaccination. Are there already swine fever vaccines on the market? Yes, there are, uh, but in a limited way. So the first generation vaccines have, have recently been commercialised and, and approved for use in, in Vietnam in particular. So that's been, Vietnam has been leading the way with, um, with producing these vaccines and evaluating them in the field. Uh, there are other countries that are now looking at, at those vaccines and have signed, um, or distributors in those countries have designed, uh, signed licensing agreements and distribution agreements with those Vietnamese companies. Uh, but they're not yet um, in widespread use in, in those countries and, and they're various countries in Southeast Asia. The issue with the first generation vaccines is that they're uh, modified live vaccines and these vaccines uh, as a vaccine type have in inherent safety issues in that they uh, have the potential to revert back to a virulent form. Okay, but the vaccine that you're working with is different? That's right. So it's a it's a non-live virus vaccine platform. It's a it's actually a DNA vaccine platform that uh, MBF Therapeutics have developed. So in that respect, it's it's um, inherently safe. It uh, doesn't have those issues that the live uh, virus vaccines um, have. And it might be early stages, perhaps. But for you, what promise does this vaccine hold? Well, for us, we're looking at it as, as a second generation um, safe vaccine platform that will um, get around those safety issues that the, the first generation vaccines have. Um, and it can also be used in all production stages of, um, of pig production uh, so that the first generation vaccines currently can't be used for sows and also for pigs with underlying health issues. Just lastly, for farmers, meat processors out there listening to this who have been I suppose, operating with the fear of African swine fever hanging over their heads for, well, years now. What sort of hope do you think they should place in this potential vaccine? Um, I think we're being cautiously optimistic about how successful we can be in, in developing this vaccine. I should say that vaccine development is, is something that, that can fail and many vaccines do uh, or don't progress to commercialisation. Um, after their development, but we're hopeful um, as our MBFT that we've um, 
got a really effective platform here that will uh, deliver on a, a safe and effective vaccine uh, against all of the African swine fever types that are circulating. Dr David Williams, he's an African swine fever expert at CSIRO's Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness. He was speaking to Angus Verley. The vaccine, as uh, David was saying, has been developed by US biotech firm MBF Therapeutics and it's being evaluated at the specially designed Geelong facility. 21 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. An update from the newsroom. We'll look at the headlines shortly, then checking the weather around Western Australia just before one. Danny Burkett along going through this week's wool market for you, the sales here in the West and in the East. First, though, a recent run of government approvals could see an expansion of the use of drones in WA's booming resources sector, potentially delivering spare parts to remote locations. This year, WA-based tech startup Wedgetail Aerospace received Australia's first Civil Aviation Safety Authority approval to operate large-scale drones in commercial airspace. Wedgetail's Chief Operating Officer Dominic Letts says the opportunities are endless. We think there's potential customers in both the government and commercial sectors. In the commercial side, um, we think it can be used for survey photogrammetry and also things such as LiDAR and we think it can be used to deliver uh, critical parts to high value industry like oil and gas or mining to solve their unplanned downtime. This drone is equipped with an electrical optic and thermal camera so that can support disaster management. So it can map and monitor fires by day and by night. It can also support understanding the, uh, or in post-disaster recovery, understanding what has happened, where the disasters occurred. In terms of medical deliveries, drones like this can do that as well. Um, But we think there might be uh, other drones more suited to that uh, because medical supplies are lighter. This drone can carry a heavy payload, which is 55 kilograms, whereas a smaller drone is cheaper and it can do that job of medical supply delivery probably more cheaper and more effectively. The Pilbara has highly productive industry. It has iconic land and maritime environment and it's got the blessing of the tyranny of distance. So what that means is things are a long long way away from each other and you need transport to get goods or services from A to B. So we think this is a great place to utilise this technology. So our focus for the remainder of this calendar year is demonstrating the capability across Australia. We're going to Canberra, Sydney and then back to Kalgoorlie and Perth. 24 is when we intend to start establishing our hubs We don't have to build a hub per se. We've found uh, an existing facility here at Caratha Airport that's suitable for our needs. And so we'd like to see ourselves here sometime next year. We think uh, the drones are going to get bigger and the ranges are going to get longer. So we're we're a trailblazer in the field at the moment. This is our start point. Uh, We're going to get good at this and then we're going to get bigger and go longer. Dominic Letts from Wedgetail Aerospace, which has plans to build an operations hub out of Carathas Airport. Now, these particular drones, they're a lot larger than the drones you might already see in use around the state, and that's why they need government approvals. 
But smaller, multi-rotor drones are already in use at a number of mine sites across Western Australia. Chief Remote Pilot with BHP's WA Iron Ore Operations, Sean Van Gore, says they've been using drones for about a decade and in many circumstances, they're the best option. I got my licence back in 2017 and, and the trainer back then wrapped it up pretty sweetly. He said, we use drones to remove people from dull, dirty or dangerous duties. So that's pretty much how we've implemented drones at BHP Iron Ore. Rather than hiring, say, just a drone pilot, we've upskilled our workforce. So that could be an engineer. Uh, they now have the have the skills to do inspections on assets themselves, actually flying into the points of interest and getting their data. What kind of drones are we talking about? Are they big? Are they are they the normal ones that photographers use or, or are they more resource specialised? We went down the path of trying to build some resource specialised aircraft, but um, there's, there's some companies out there that these drones make themselves redundant quite quickly. And so there's quite a lot of drones out there. The technology evolves that rapidly that um, we're using predominantly what's on the market. There are a lot of enterprise solutions out there which allow us to fly on the high temperatures and high humidities and high altitudes that we expect uh, experience up here in the program. Um, but, yeah, anything from small, mediums-sized drones. And before you mentioned the benefits to using drones, one of them was taking people out of unsafe situations. Can you expand on that? So the way BHP's approached our pass of drones in the industry is um, we've just upskilled a lot of our pilots, I've uh, skilled a lot of our employees to become remote pilots. For example, our blast technicians, they all now hold the, the relative licences to fly over their blasts. They no longer have to walk over the heave, uh, exposing themselves to voids or cavities. Surveyors no longer have to drive into active mining areas, interacting with SME or surface mobile equipment. Geologists, they're also upskilled to hold a remote pilot's licence. They now have to walk up inclines in 40-degree days, exposing themselves to environmental threats. So that's been our approach. That's Chief Remote Pilot with BHP's WA Iron Ore Operations, Sean Van Gore, and he was speaking to Jane Murphy. 26 past 12. In other resources news, in the last financial year, Western Australia recorded a record $254 billion worth of mineral and petroleum sales. That's a sixth consecutive year of growth for the sector and up $20 billion from the year before. The most valuable mineral was iron ore, followed by lithium. Gold, nickel and LNG also did quite well in the last year. The sector also broke employment records with more than 126,000 full-time workers in Western Australia. And mineral exploration expenditure also hit a new financial year high at $2.5 billion dollars mostly targeting gold, iron ore and critical minerals. Some big numbers for sure. 27 past 12. Western Australia's biggest blueberry grower is in the middle of an ambitious expansion project. Now, one of the reasons Marek Kavirchain Fisher's family is so confident is because they've managed to get hold of some WA-bred varieties that produce huge blueberries that are highly sought after by overseas customers. Yeah, the, the Hong Kong and the Singapore markets, they love their jumbo fruit. And their jumbo specification is, is 18 millimetres plus. We're providing fruit at 25 millimetres plus in a super jumbo package, which is unseen of, unheard of, for, to be quite frank, 
unheard of returns. Now, you will hear the full story about those emerging export markets on Monday's Country Hour. The Fisher's Blueberry Farm is just north of Jinjin. It's the first in WA to start using a mechanical harvester. And some of their new varieties have been bred especially for that harvester. The full story, that's a little bit of a tease for you, but the full story right here on the Country Hour on Monday. 29 past 12, Jonathan Beale is in the studio with the news headlines. Thanks, Belinda. WA's Corrective Services Minister has conceded poor procedures and inadequate responses by staff played a role in the death of a 16-year-old in youth detention. Cleveland Dodd died last month, more than a week after being found unresponsive in his cell at Casuarina Prisons Unit 18. Paul Papalia has previously declined to comment on details revealed by the ABC, including that the officer in charge on the night was found lying down and partially undressed during the emergency. It's been revealed in court, a 16-year-old boy who allegedly took part in the stabbing and robbery of a Bunbury taxi driver was released from juvenile detention the day before the incident. The boy appeared in the Bunbury Children's Court today via video link from Banksy Hill Detention Centre. It's alleged he attacked the driver on Sunday alongside two other people the day after he completed four months' detention for a previous armed robbery. And police and state emergency services are continuing to search bushland surrounding a remote campground in WA's north for a missing teenager. 14-year-old Bella Norris was last seen by her family around 5 o'clock yesterday afternoon near Kwandong Point north of Broome. The Australian Maritime Safety Authority, State Emergency Service and local volunteers have joined the search in hot and humid conditions. More news, Belinda, at one. Jonathan, thank you very much for that half past 12. This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Still to come, we are going to take a look at the number of starlings around Western Australia because apparently the the numbers are higher than expected right along WA's southeast coast this year. Also, taking a look in the shearing shed, apparently there's quite a few um, sheep producers, wool growers, who are cutting back on the number of workers in the shearing shed. So trying to cut back on sort of um, rouseabouts and uh, wool classes, for example, cutting back on those labour costs. But at the same time, you might be actually losing some money on your valuable fleece because of your trying to save money on, say, the wool classes, for example. We'll hear from Jason Letchford. He is from the Shearing Contractors Association of Australia. He'll be along shortly. And then, of course, Danny Burkett going through this week's wool market for you. Right now, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Caroline Crow, let's take a look around the Southwest Land Division. What can you see this afternoon? Yeah, hi, Belle. Uh, pretty quiet through the Southwest Land Division today. Uh, just a few showers along the western south coast and the onshore airflow behind that uh, weak cold front that moved through yesterday. Uh, and pretty much the remaining parts are looking uh Partly cloudy, uh, but no no weather expected. Um, over the coming days, though, we will see that change. Uh, we've got a ridge pushing through to the south and a trough developing 
through central parts into uh, reaching out to the Midwest uh, Gascoigne coast there around the Shark Bay area there. And we're going to get a squeeze uh, in the, the gradient, and which is going to produce uh, 10 those winds easterly and uh, freshen them up. So uh, we're going to see fresh and gusty winds uh, develop through central parts and sort of in that uh, western area, uh, particularly around the hills as well uh, over the um, from tomorrow. Uh, this uh, weather pattern is pretty much going to hang around for the outlook period, Bell, so it doesn't really change too much. Uh, so those fresh and gusty easterly winds are going to be a uh, persistent, uh, prolonged uh, for three, four days until we start seeing them maybe moderate a little bit, but still easterly into sort of the middle of next week. As well as the winds uh, from a, a weather, shower, thunderstorm, rain perspective, um, from tomorrow we're going to see uh, thunderstorms showers and thunderstorms develop on the southern side of that trough. Uh, so for the Southwest Land Division, that's going to be through northern parts uh, first off, so the Central West District and northern parts of the Central Wheat Belt, and we will gradually see them extend further south, getting to about sort of the Lanceland, maybe even reaching Perth by midnight and across to around the Hyden area. So anywhere north of that line by midnight tomorrow is where we're looking at the showers and thunderstorm line. And then as the weekend progresses and into early next week, by Sunday, we will see a gradual extension of those showers and thunderstorms further south, pretty much reaching uh, most parts of the southwest land division on the south coast uh, by Monday. Uh, and we will see, as well as extending south, they will uh, gradually clear from about north of uh, Geraldton coming into uh, Monday and Tuesday. And uh, so, yeah, so a period of... Uh, Persistent easterly winds, a period of persistent thunderstorms through uh, the southwest land division. Uh, from a fire danger rating perspective, uh, th- are looking at uh, prolonged uh, high fire danger ratings throughout the period. Um, the temperatures are above average or warmest along the west coast. Uh, probably not as warm as what we've experienced in other other trough situations where you get those really hot temperatures. It's not going to be as hot, uh, but uh, still getting to those high fire danger ratings. From a rainfall perspective from the thunderstorms, the thunderstorms do look as though they might have a little bit more rain associated with them compared to previous events, uh, but it does look as though it's going to be quite patchy. Um, So... I guess the most likely area coming uh, into Saturday is uh, those far northern parts of the Southwest Land Division, and then that will extend maybe sort of through the northern half of the Southwest Land Division coming into Sunday, Monday, and then towards the southeast of the Southwest Land Division as, as a guide uh, to where uh, some of the rainfall may be. As I mentioned, it will be patchy. Uh, rainfall totals are around two to 10 millimetres with isolated 15, 20, 25 millimetres, maybe even getting up to 30 millimetres. It's hard to pinpoint and it's probably one of those cases or weather situations where uh, you might get a thunderstorm with some rainfall out of it getting 20, 30 millimetres and then your uh, the neighbouring farm may not get anything or get like two millimetres. So um, that's kind of how the rainfall patchiness will be coming into uh, this event, Belle. All right, thank you for that. And then moving into northern and eastern parts, they're still expecting some of this thunderstorm activity too? 
Yeah, that's correct, Belle. So at the moment for today, the thunderstorms, uh, we're looking at afternoon, evening thunderstorms through uh, the Kimberley and into northern parts of the interior. And there's also a chance of getting some thunderstorms through far north eastern parts of the Gascoigne into northern parts of the goldfields and sort of uh, extending uh, east into the, the south interior as well. Now, those thunderstorms through that central part of the state are likely to be a little less rainfall or, or dry thunderstorms today. And it's just a, a slight chance down the trough. But Coming into tomorrow, um, as that uh, trough develops further, uh, the thunderstorms will pretty much link up all, from the Kimberley all the way through to that uh, southwest land division area there. So for all um, the northern and eastern parts of the state, uh, the thunderstorm area, if we draw a line, uh, so from tomorrow, from the Shark Bay area up to around Newman going uh, into the interior and up through Derby, sort of uh, south and east of that line is, is where we're looking at um, the showers and thunderstorms for Saturday. Coming into Sunday as that trough just uh, drops a little bit further south, the thunderstorms will drop a little bit further south as well. Uh, so looking at south of Denham through uh, to... Uh, the sort of uh, north of Waluna and then up through uh, the interior towards the Kimberley and then we'll see it drop further south again on Monday and Tuesday where it's, uh, if we draw a line uh, from about Mount Magnet through to Waluna and into the south interior and up to the uh, Kimberley area. So most of the thunderstorms are going to be th sort of through the southern half and the eastern half um, for the remaining parts of the state outside the southwest land division. For the Pilbara, it's generally going to be uh, clear conditions uh, for, for the outlook period and we are going to start seeing a bit of a, a fresh northwesterly flow dominate that area, Belle. And then this afternoon, Caroline, any warnings? Uh, currently, there's just the uh, one warning for the coastal waters, and that's all up and down the west coast uh, from uh, Geograph Bay all the way up north to the Ningaloo Coast, Bell. Caroline, thank you for going through those details. It's 22 to 1. Just a few moments ago, Jonathan Beale was here with the news headlines saying that WA police had urgent welfare concerns for 14-year-old Bella, who was last seen near Kwandong Point about 50 kilometres north of Broome last night. Uh, some great news on that front. Bella has been located and is being reunited with her family. So some great news, uh, an update from WA Police just coming through. Now, Richard Hudson in the studio going through the rainfall figures. And it won't take long. In the northern and eastern forecast districts, the only region to get any rain was the Kimberley, Elquestro 19, Marion Downs and Siddons Creek had 16. But apart from that, nothing at five mils or above. And in fact, nowhere in the entire Southwest Land Division forecast districts recorded any more than two mils. The top was uh, two at Narracup West in the southern coastal region. Uh, there is a total fire ban in place for parts of the Pilbara today, obviously due to the risk of fire. So that bans for the local government areas of Ashburton, East Pilbara, Exmouth, Caratha and Port Hedland. So during a total fire ban, no activity can uh, be undertaken that could start a fire. So things like outdoor fires, surprise, surprise, uh, solid fuel barbecues, no grinding, welding, gas cutting, no off-road driving in a four-wheel drive or on a quad bike or motorbike. 
And uh, if you are unsure about what you can and can't do or for the affected areas, then just go to the Emergency WA website or the DFIS website is actually the one for the do's and don'ts. A bushfire watch and act is in place in the Shire of Dundas. So that's for people near the Nova mine site, including the Nova mine site access road and surrounding areas in parts of Fraser Range in the Shire of Dundas. The fire's approaching the area and conditions are changing. Um, DFIS has another 16 fires at an advice level, so if you need more details on either that Watch and Act or on any of the ones that are at, at an advice level, just search Emergency in WA and you'll get all the information on the Emergency WA website. And, of course, keep listening to ABC Local Radio. Thanks for that, Richard. 20 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And higher than expected starling numbers have been trapped across WA's southeast coast this year. And that is a worry because the birds pose a potential or significant threat to high value fruit crops, things like grapes and stone fruit. And they can also eat grain and fowl drinking water. Research scientist Susan Campbell says DPIRT is doing everything it can to ensure the birds don't get established here in WA. Yeah, so this season um, our trapping program has removed to date 26 starlings from that south coast area and an additional 450 uh, birds from near the border with South Australia. So these numbers far exceed the total seasonal averages for the last 15 years for both those areas. So typically we would expect to trap around six to eight on average birds along the south coast per season and perhaps between 60 to 70 on average at the border. So we're well in excess of those averages and we've still got a long way to go to get to the end of summer trapping. Yeah, so any idea why the numbers have increased? It's likely that there's a combination of reasons. What we have noticed is that in the year preceding the last two incidences, so this one and back in 2016, is higher than average rainfall in some of those South Australian towns that are close to the border, places like Sejuna and Nundru. So this slightly above average rainfall likely provides favourable conditions and additional food resources and this would enable the South Australian starlings to really um, increase in density. And this increase in density probably motivates some of those South Australian starlings to migrate out of South Australia and in, into Western Australia to look for sort of reduced competition and, and more resources over here. So how has the department ramped up surveillance and control in order to stem this increase in numbers this summer? What we're doing now is sourcing an additional 30 to 40 of our specialised traps. We're sourcing those locally. So we'll look to put those extra traps out um, in areas where we're not currently trapping, but also uh, bring on some extra staffing resources to help us manage those traps and keep them open for a longer period of time than what we would have normally done. But we're also using some acoustic detection technology and that enables us to enhance our surveillance footprint, so where we're listening and looking for starlings. And this is particularly important um, west of Hopetown at the moment. So we will put out some recorders in places like Bremer Bay and Many Peaks, where we can't get to for our trapping program, but we can get some form of early detection through the acoustics. So we don't have 
starlings established here in Western Australia and we really don't want them. The other important thing to note for this season is that all of the birds that we've been trapping have all been adults. So there's been no juvenile or very young birds trapped uh, this season in our traps. And this gives us some evidence that there isn't a local breeding population of starlings in Western Australia. Deep Herd Research Scientist Susan Campbell with Tara DeLangraft. And if you're in that south coastal region and you see any birds that you think could be starlings, please do get in touch with Deep Herd's Pest and Disease Information Service or you can log it through Deep Herd's My Pest Guide Reporter app. My Pest Guide Reporter app. Starlings are one of the few birds that don't mind standing on the back of sheep waiting for insects. So if you see that sort of caper, maybe the bird you're looking at is a starling. It is 16 to 1 here on the Country Hour and shortly Danny Burkett along to go through the wool market. And speaking of wool, the collapse in the lamb market has many farmers across the country apparently cutting back on the number of workers in the shearing shed. That's what Jason Letchford is noticing. He's the secretary of the Shearing Contractors Association of Australia. He says getting rid of wool classes or rouseabouts might save you money on labour costs, but it might cost you money on the value of your fleece. Jason Letchford says it's a frustrating t- trend because the industry has just worked so hard to train hundreds of new workers. We attracted around 500 people since 2020 to come and go through our training schools. That was for Victoria and South Australia alone without counting the other states. And about 70% of those people are still working that we've put through training, which has been a great result. But this year's been, well, this spring especially, has been a real um, turnaround because with the, the significant fall in the meat price of lamb or you know, the fat lamb market is, is almost, you'd call it collapsed. And crossbred wool is not highly valued, but it's, we're seeing a situation where a lot of growers are choosing not to have shed staff in the shed or maybe downgrade the wool classer into just being a shed staff and therefore losing one or two of the shed staff because they're not seeing the value in the crossbred wool. So it means there's lack of consistency now coming on and it's just sort of starting to happen where we're seeing shed staff that are, should be fully employed in, in this time of year that are, that are not fully employed. They're only getting part weeks or you know three weeks in the month at the moment. What does that mean, I guess, well, first of all, for, for the wool, the products that are coming through these sheds, what does that mean if people aren't, you know, classing them enough? Is that a bit of a chicken and egg thing for their value? Absolutely. Well, it's more, I think it's more, you know, if you talk to anyone on the price side of things, people are not real, or some growers are not realising the value of classing the wool because, you know, example I was given the other day that if crossbred wool is classed, it gets $3.80 a kilo which doesn't sound like a lot, but if you're not classing it, you're only getting around $2.80 a kilo, so you're losing that dollar a kilo. And if there's three or four kilos on the animal, well, there's three or four dollars you're missing, whereas the price of plaster a day, no through my numbers, is worth possibly 40 cents a head. So you're sort of giving away several dollars per animal in not having the wool class. So that's what I'd call sort of a, a cash flow view of the world, thinking you're going to save a little bit of money up front, whereas you're not sort of seeing the revenue in the at the other end of it. So, I mean, everyone will love to have that debate and do the different numbers to me, but that's really, as an industry, how we see the numbers and how we promote and try and encourage growers to to see the value in staffing your your shearing shed well with with highly skilled 
staff and that gives them continuity of work. We keep them in the industry. You get more for your end product. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. So we're a little bit dumbfounded or you know, gobsmacked when we hear of these practices going on where you know sheds are not well staffed with skilled and qualified workers. With the staff that may have recently come through training schools, you know, how many people were taking up training in roustabout and wool classes, and you know, what what could that mean for keeping them in the industry? Well, yes, like it literally was hundreds of people, several hundred that you know we've got on our books that we we sort of track and keep in touch with and do follow up training with. But yeah, unfortunately, you know, it's it's a bit of the old first in first out situation largely we're going to lose those people because if their annual income falls to a certain point where they can go off to a different industry and get you know more continuity of income uh, in other words get a get a wage or salary job you know it could be in a in a warehouse or a factory or the supermarkets or that system we're going to lose those workers and then as sure as you know, we know the sun will come up every day. We know that the commodity price of meat and wool will improve. You know, we've gone from all-time highs to relatively all-time lows, and it, you know, it'll change. And then we'll be screaming out for staff again, and and much much to our frustration because those people that we promised the world and didn't deliver, well, we're not going to have them rushing back in a hurry, only to be disappointed again if that the short-term view or the short-term cycle that they get trapped in. Shearing Contractors Association of Australia Secretary Jason Letchford. Fiona Rawley is a wool classer register with the Australian Wool Exchange. She says farmers taking shortcuts in the shearing sheds has meant an increase in wool not being prepared to standard. It's a bit of a rural myth, I call it, in that when one person hears of these shortcuts being taken, then it becomes a you know a standard and people are moving towards doing that. So there has been an increase in wool, I would say, that is not being prepared to the standard, which is the code of practice, uh, which the Australian Wool Exchange deems to be the standard for preparation of wool in Australia for sale at auction. I think growers need to be aware and make sure that the decisions that they're making are in their best interest. Wool at auction that isn't classed or classed by registered classer or prepared to meet the code of practice standard is of a lesser option for our customers. Now, with crossbred and lambs wool, as these are lower value types, it can be easily misunderstood that that means that they don't need the preparation standard. But crossbred and lambs will have customers, and our customers expect that wool to be prepared to the code of practice because wool that's prepared to the code of practice performs predictably for them. So that predictable performance, contamination-free and prepared to the code of practice is what our customers recognise when they're purchasing wool. Well, that's classed wool. So if I was a, a crossbred lamb wool purchaser, for example, and I wasn't able to find the volumes of wool coming through the market that meet my expectations, then that can become problematic and maybe into the point where they start to move away from using crossbred lamb's wool and, and then that becomes an issue where this is self-perpetuating the lower value. So I think growers need to be mindful that they're weighing up and making the correct decisions because to put your wool in the most competitive position at market is to have it classed and prepared so it looks and is presented to its best. In fact, you could say that it's contradictory in a way that in a depressed land market, why would you not then also prepare your lamb's wool to make the best money that you possibly can if you're 
sheep are not meeting that expectation, then at least make your wool meet the expectation. So this is probably the, the situation we're in now is that there's sort of some advice and decisions being made around preparing wool that, that don't meet the code of practice. The other thing is that growers also need to consider that they are probably paying contract price for those sheep to be shorn, regardless of the preparation standards. So if they're paying for their contracting teeth to come in and, and they're paying good money for that, then also why not have that wool class? Australian Wool Exchange Wool Class Register, Fiona Rawley, ending that report from Eliza Bellage. On the text, Michael in Ongarup says, pretty bold strategy to cut back on shed staff when half of them don't bother rocking up anyway. 0448 if you want to have your say on the text, nine minutes to one. Well, it sounds like some growers are cutting back on workers in the shearing shed, like the rouseabouts and the wool classes. Many of Australia's 60,000 wool growers are still struggling to find shearers. Now, that struggle may be eased in the future with breakthrough research into biological wool harvesting, which will give growers more options when it comes to removing the fibre. Cara Jeffrey's story begins with Phil Hind. I work with the two most sceptical groups of people on the planet, farmers and scientists, you know. No one believes anything is going to work, but I think this will. That's University of Adelaide's Professor Phil Hind, and he's doing his best to convince the wool industry he's not reinventing the wheel with Bioclip 2.0. So we've been working on an alternative to shearing for about 20 years now. People would be aware of Bioclip and robot shearing and so on, We took a different approach to those. They were basically trying to replicate shearing, you know, getting the wool off by cutting it. One of them cut it, Bioclip cut it with a chemical, and um, robot shearing, of course, was using the same sort of um, equipment to, to cut wool. In case you missed it, about two decades ago, Bioclip emerged and was touted as a biological defleecing process. Sheep were given a single vaccination of something called epidermal growth factor, a naturally occurring protein that caused wool fibres to break. The fleece was then shed into a net the sheep was wearing and then later removed. We took a completely different approach to that. We decided that if it was possible to make wool weak, weak enough to be easily broken by a non-cutting machine but strong enough to stay on in the field. Now that's a pretty big ask Um, and probably 20 years ago we got some way towards that. We we got a long way actually. We created a weak point. We could break it with a little simple machine that didn't cut you Um, but there was something missing and that was we were doing it with a protein called Zane and Zane is part of corn protein. And um, when we fed that to sheep, we found that it created the weak point we wanted. But we knew that feeding wasn't the way to go. We knew that we had to have better control of how much the animal got and for a short period of time. So we, we needed an injectable. And that's where we've made the big breakthrough now. It is completely different to Bioclip. This is not Bioclip 2. This is a completely different system. The idea is we create the weak point with an injection, which is done the same as farmers do for vaccinating sheep, subcutaneous, under the skin, and we wait two or three weeks, maybe four weeks, for the wool to grow under that weak point, and then we break it with a simple machine that just takes it off with no combs and cutters. In fact, we hope it'll be done without any people involved. It'll just be done with an automatic machine. It's also suitable for pregnant ewes, unlike Bioclip, 
Professor Phil Hind and his team recently demonstrated their research at a field day hosted by Australian Wool Innovation at Canago in southern New South Wales. George Millington from renowned South Australian merino stud Collinsville was pretty impressed. If there's anything that we can invest in as an industry to actually try and make sheep farming more attractive and try and make wool growing more attractive and easier for the grower to do, I think we should do it. At the moment, from what I've seen today, it's probably more being able to give a grower who wants to shear 200 sheep and is unable to get shearers for the day, but I think there'll still be a lot of room for large contract shearing teams uh, to shear in commercial situations. Ian Lugsden and his family used Bioclip on their merino flock at Hay in the New South Wales Riverina for several years. So he was keen to see the difference, especially given the nets that were used in the Bioclip process have been ditched. The only problem we had with it was getting the wool out of the nets. Because we have a lot of trefoil, um, the, the issue then was it took quite a while to get the wool out of the nets. The first two years, or the second and the third year, we actually sent it to China in the nets. And even the Chinese didn't want to pull it out of the net, so that's telling you something how hard it is. While Professor Phil Hind and his team of researchers have worked out how to weaken the fibre via an injectable, they now need help with an engineering solution to remove the wool. At the moment we're looking at kind of plucking machines, and so it just moves across the body and the, and the wool, when, when we get it right, the wool peels off the front of that plucking device and just... We, we, we hope to remove it then with a, a vacuum system. Australian Wool Innovation CEO John Roberts is prepared to spend more money to make biological wool harvesting work. So far, the wool grower levy-funded research, development and marketing body has sunk $1.4 million into the research and will spend more to find an engineering solution. We want to spend as much as is needed on this, on this project. Um, Right now, it's, it's apparently it's enough, but I think going forward, when we get to the harvesting piece, we're going to need to invest more money, absolutely. Ultimately, what the industry wants to know is the on-farm cost of biological wool harvesting. Professor Phil Hind. Very early days to start predicting costs, to be honest. At the moment, the agent is our best candidate. I costed at the extraction that we're doing is about 20 cents a dose. Now, that's not what it's going to cost when it gets onto the market, but we're in the right ballpark, right? University of Adelaide Professor Phil Hind ending that story from Cara Jeffrey. Tune into Landline this Sunday at half past 12 to find out more about biological wool harvesting. Three minutes to one and not a lot of movement in the wool market this week. The eastern market indicator down one cent to close at 1,128 cents a kilogram clean and the western market indicator down 12 cents to finish the week on 1,267 cents a kilo clean. Now this time last week Danny Burkett's phone had overheated, it couldn't take any calls. This week the phone's been on ice and he's here. What did you make of the market Danny? We had very good two days in Fremantle, in particular the second day after the Eastern States closed. We saw Fremantle lift quite substantially late on the second day. So pretty much across the board, all the microns were 20 clean dearer, but for the two days, 18s were up 5 to close at 1,500, 19s up 10 to close at 1,390, 20 micron, 13, 20 on the close, they were up 20. 21s were also up 20 to close at 12.95. 22s also up 20, but lost five on the first day, so 15 for the two days, closing at 12.60. Pieces and bellies, roughly par on the first day, slightly dearer on the second. That was across the board, regardless of micron and VM. 
Oddments up one day, back the next. Uh, locks up 25, then back 25. We had crutchings firm, lambs were firm, stains up 25, then off 25. So all over the show in the Oddment market. If we look at the um, fleece wool, if we look at a 185 kilo bale, uh, good sound merino fleece wool, 18 micron, $1,890 a bale, 19, $1,750, 20 micron, 1660 21, 16, 30, and 22, 15, 85. So although not spectacular, certainly reasonable returns for what is going on around the world at the moment. And the buyers this week? No surprises. Uh, China, China, and China. They were represented in the room by Tech. They took 19.5% Verino fleece wool. PJ Morris, the West Australian-based business, 15%. Endeavour Wool Exports, 125 and TNU, always in the top four, 105 Worth, worth noting, Tech will second largest buyer in the crossbreds, largest buyer in the skirtings, and second largest buyer in the ovens. And then for next week, Danny? We have two days sales in Sydney, Melbourne, and Fremantle. They will be conducted on the Tuesday, Wednesday. It was swapped around this week, something for Melbourne Cup. Just over 45,000 bars on offer this week, very similar to the offering we had this week. Thank you so much, Danny. Appreciate that. On the ABC, time for the news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.